welcome to episode three of the Awkward In-Between podcast. That is a podcast where we explore those awkward in-between places, uh, between various positions of certainty, uh, between you know, the right side and the extreme left side, and theism and atheism and life and death and all those other awkward in-between <laughs> kind of places. We've kind of hit a bit of a, a, a theme already in this uh, first season, I guess, if you want to call it, of the podcast, because we did explore in episode one, Dave, that you and I... I guess for us, our journey into exploring more of the awkward in-between spaces and questions came from our move from, I guess, conservative evangelicalism into more of a mystic sense of spirituality. And then in our, our last episode, we had Paul Coleman on, who was probably in a, a sort of similar journey and explored a fair bit about his um, current, I guess, wrestles and thoughts on, on faith and whatever. Yeah. And we've got a, another guest today, who I guess you know personally from, from Christian music circles. Yeah, well, that's right. Uh, so, obviously, we are, uh, at, we've established two uh, middle-aged white guys uh, sharing their unwanted opinions. Uh, and uh, our guest today is male, uh, but he does have a more interesting um, heritage. Uh, and uh, we met through my running of the Easterfest Music Festival, which we've talked about before. Are, are you telling me we're ticking our diversity quota? Is that what we're <laughs> He's not a token anything. He's just good. a very good friend. <laughs> but uh, no, we're, we're excited to have join us today. Uh, my friend uh, Caleb Hart from Vancouver, I think. Yeah, living on Vancouver Island. The good life. Well, it's good to have you, my friend. Um, maybe before we go any further, you better tell us just a little. Obviously, I've met you as a, the lead singer of a band at the festival, and we might touch on uh, what that journey was like too, because it's just an interesting story. But uh, before we even get into anything else, and while I crack and open mine and Damien's first beer for the evening, uh, which is also something we like to uh, feature in our podcast. Uh, so today we're starting, Damien, on a shape shifter. 5.6% porter. Ooh, who makes that? Ooh, their shapeshifter, oh, shapeshifter is the, is the brewer. brewer. Yeah, yeah, it's just their, their standard porter. So I'll crack that open. Caleb, tell us a little bit about who you are, my friend. Who I am? Oh, this may take a while. No, uh, <laughs> Well, it's kind of rude, really, when he just says, we're, we're going to crack open a beer and sit back, mate. Now you take over and do the hard work. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's almost midnight here in uh, Vancouver Island, Canada. Um, so who I am is a bit uh, convoluted in my mind right now. But um, you know, originally from Trinidad and Tobago in in the Caribbean, the West Indies, as uh, most Australians and uh, any cricket nation would know it. Um, you know, the home of Brian Lara. Uh, moved to Canada in two thousand nine, and that's when I started my personal spiritual journey with uh you know at that time was uh, my experience with christ and world transformation for me and from you know gangs and addiction and extra etc etc caleb i'm gonna the, jump the, in i'm gonna jump in right there okay I'm gonna jump yeah, in because, totally. because that straight away has just sparked curiosity to me um one of the things, because we were talking to Paul Coleman actually in the in the last episode about that, um, the recent movie Through the Eyes of Tammy Faye, and there's this great scene at the beginning there where you've got this young girl having you know a, a religious experience of some sort. Just tell us a little mm -hmm. bit more about like what when you talk about an experience of Christ, what is that? Like what was that experience, if you can even put it into words? Uh, it, it's pretty it's pretty easy to put into words because it was like a blatant. Um, 
moment in time vision. It wasn't a dream. It wasn't uh, drug induced or, uh, you know, anything like that. But I had a moment where all of a sudden I was, for lack of a better term, captured into this uh, vision of a light that approached me. Massive light, unexplainable how the word light kind of kind of dims uh, what what I saw. But and then a figure of sorts. There was no race. There was no gender. You know, whatever. There was no beard. <laughs> um, approached me and said, "I am love, and I've created you to love." And then disappeared, and I no longer had any rage or addictions um, and spent about seven hours bawling my eyes out and knew for sure that something had changed inside of my being that began my journey. Is that one of those experiences and I guess, I guess my question, has there ever been time since that experience where you've questioned what that experience was or was it one of those ones that was just kind of so transcendent and concrete that there's never been any certain uh, any doubt since having that experience that you were touched by, you know, Christ or God or whatever you want to call it? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't think that I've thought much about the actual experience except when sharing it. For me, what, what mattered or matters the most, the longevity of the truth of what took place in my in my being so you can you can see things and hear things and have experiences all you want but if there's no evidence then really does it mean anything so for me it wasn't about that moment that moment just sparked uh, a life transformation that literally at that moment onward um transformed my life so i lit you know i went from wanting to bash people's faces in to wanting to hug people and just let them know that God loves them. Uh, not in a, with any agenda either, which was is a very important part of my, um, you know, journey. It's not like telling people they're wrong or something, <laughs> you know. Uh, just literally just like, yo, God loves you so much. <laughs> and I know it sounds wacky and hippie and all that stuff to some people, and I don't really care because um, it's real and it happened. It's interesting. I was just thinking, like, my context for faith was such a classical kind of Western middle-class church experience growing up as a pastor's kid, you know, and uh, basically, you know, considering myself to be a Christian from the age of about four or five when how could I possibly even have had a clue what that even meant, but but that was when I decided I wanted to be like all the people around me, I guess, really. Um, but you've you know, kind of in passing, you've mentioned drugs and gangs in Trinidad, Tobago. Obviously, the context you had come from was so completely different to that experience. And I'm not sure, what was the context like in Canada? Like, when you, when you had that experience, what was the context like? Particularly, what was, what was it that led you to, you know, to, to settle upon language like Christ uh, in explaining that experience? Well, what's really interesting is my story is a bit peculiar because my both parents are pastors. Um, but there, I had no interest in what I grew up seeing. Um, like, at all, like, I mean, even now thinking about it or even at that moment, I remember thinking, this isn't what I was seeing, is it? You know what I mean? Like, so there is a difference, and I think that's where, you know, I may be labeled a heretic by many, is I see 
legitimacy in Christ and then saw even more legitimacy the more I study studied the personhood of Christ and um, that I thought it was Christ and then it kind of got affirmed through let's say the ethos that he he preaches that he teaches so but and whatever <laughs> there's that's not what I saw growing up. And I'm not talking about my parents, just to clarify. Obviously, to an extent, you know, just like anybody. But I more meant the surroundings, the the conferences and the, you know, the the prosperity, uh, you know, shoving people over and begging for their money and then selling, like, selling cups of water and calling it holy water. and Like, you know, all that stuff. That I That's what I grew up seeing. And, and I had no interest, you know. It's like the capitalist version of Jesus. Yeah, yeah. You've kind of mentioned already and touched on how that having that kind of experience and something that's very um, transformative in yourself almost automatically placed you in that awkward in between space. Or on one hand, you said you know you've got people that may listen to a, a story like that and go, well, that's just crazy hippie woo woo stuff. Mm. But then you've also got this other extreme on the other side, you know. It, and I guess I'm talking about more of like a, a conservative. Christian environment or some sort that then almost wants to deconstruct and label that experience as having some sort of and, and you're kind of torn in between these two extremes where you know it, it's not something you can dismiss as crazy but it's not something you want to label and pin down as being part of you know like an, an institution that as you say is had plenty of flaws about it yeah absolutely and I think most importantly um the I think of one of the major things I've learned over the last 13 years since that happened uh, in my life is that w we don't need to like I don't care if you think it's crazy because for you it might be crazy because that's just how you are and you may be totally okay with your life and living the uh, uh, you know a good life or whatever you want to call it you know the righteous life or whatever in a completely different way for a different reason uh, different experiences and that's very okay more than okay it's actually i i i, I love it i love that people some people think my story is crazy and some people think it needs to be institutionalized and compartmentalized and put in a box and some people think it's outside the box i think that's beautiful i think that's the reality of life and creation because if you look at flowers and taste fruit no, they're not the same mangoes and berries don't taste the same and that's that's what makes it so fantastic to have a fruit salad you know, or yeah. a bouquet of flowers, you know. Oh, and so. what's even more amazing, um, you know, because one of the areas that I've studied in was psychology, is that even two different people's experience of tasting a mango is going to be different. Mm. Precisely. Because the way that we perceive our taste and whatever, I think, and so as you say, it's a beautiful thing that you can have an experience and other people can even have an experience of your experience that is different, so which is phenomenal. I love it. I love it. No, that's very cool, man. Um, okay, so 13 years ago, what has the last 13 years looked like? Oh, that's been a while, right? You know, because so I went to Bible college for two years. I uh, thought that was the I did not know to... that. <laughs> oh, you didn't? No, I yeah, did not man, know I... that. There you go. Yeah, We're yeah. all Bible college boys then. <laughs> yeah, man. So I got my two-year diploma in theology and um. Yeah, during my apprenticeship was when I realized that I'm the type of person that I was in it to figure stuff out. So I was probably going to get my PhD if I stuck stuck around. So I needed to not because <laughs> uh, music music was my passion. And 
Uh, I really felt like that's what uh, I, uh, I'm meant to be doing. So I, I decided music instead of uh, pursuing, uh, you know, my PhD in religion and theology, etc. And yeah, that's kind of the, not the beginning of my journey with music because I was four when I decided I wanted to be a singer for the rest of my life. But that was when I was like, okay, now is the time. So I was about 20 and at 21 started Tasman Jude and that the rest is history, man. Like literally, I don't even know what happened the next 13 years <laughs> or whatever, you know, 10, 11 years after that goes from, you know, yeah, playing at a massive Christian festival in Toowoomba, Australia to playing in bars and getting kicked out of churches because I was a heathen and getting invited to churches because I wasn't a heathen and <laughs> in the same, then, you know, two nights apart, <laughs> same city. Um, you know, I mean, from, you know, praying for people on the side of the street and them getting healed miraculously to wondering if healing's even real to wondering why does it work sometimes and not others, you know, all the, all the stuff that we all go through. And then to realizing that I don't know if I think that uh, Christ is the only way that you can find righteousness or heaven or whatever. And now that's the journey I'm on. And honestly, I don't even think I believe in heaven or hell, yeah. if I'm yeah. being honest. Yeah. That's yeah, the, yeah. Well, let, let, let's, is what we want. let's come back to some of those things <laughs> because that's uh, right in our sweet spot as a podcast. But I, <laughs> I don't want to race past uh, the Tasman Jude Easter Fest uh, story because I just think it's such a great story. Totally. Uh, but I think you, you tell it better than I do. So, like, j <laughs> just share again with us the story of how man, Tasman it's not about Jude. Better, right? It's uh, yeah. just <laughs> oh no, it's it's better. <laughs> but uh, tell us again the story of how a uh, a, a Trinidad Tobago boy living in Canada <laughs> in a reggae band in Canada comes to play yeah. at a Christian music festival in Toowoomba, Australia. Yeah, man. So, like, I, yeah, we started this little reggae band in northern Alberta, Canada, way up north, you know. And I just was like, yo, I want to take over the world. I want to go everywhere. And like I said, I want to spread love through music, you know. So, I saw this, uh, saw this little ad for like, this festival and I was like, okay, I'm going to apply to this festival. There's no way I'm going to get it, but who cares, you know. <laughs> like, I'm going to apply. And then... We got accepted, but of course, like, you know, for 400 bucks or something like that, right? Like, oh, this is what we can pay you. Ah, a bunch and of I'm like, skates. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we were, we were like a year old, I think. I honestly think not even. I remember I sending that email, getting this email from this random Canadian band, listening to the music. Going, hey, this is great. I'd love to have you guys. Here. And sending that email back going, look, I don't want to insult you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, straight up. We'd love to have you, but the truth is we have no budget uh, and, and all I could do is offer this. And with the kind of disclaimer, like totally okay, I totally understand you probably can't come for that or accept that offer because you're worth so much more than that. I wish I could, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then I... I'm, I'm, I'm laughing here uh, at the moment, Kayla, because as I see the awkwardness as Dave is talking, uh, Dave's talking about this, in Australia at the moment, there's kind of a lot of heated debate about musicians getting kind of paid at kind of a base rate and everything else. And I can see Dave sitting in the awkward, <laughs> that, that also another awkward in between, yeah. between <laughs> I want to be able to pay people what they're worth and also I want to be able to run festivals and know that I can't always afford to pay people what they're worth. What yeah. do I do? Yeah, and, yeah, yeah, well, no, it was, it was always hard and I guess my... 
well, you cop out if you have one opinion or um, best way forward in the situation I was in at the time was just to say, look, this is what I've got. Uh, because I, I discovered that lots of bands wanted to be there no matter what. Mm-hmm. And, and I could decide for them or I could tell them my circumstances, apologise that they were my circumstances and let them make the decision for themselves. Mm. Well, I, th- I think what's really cool is, so he, he says that in an email and all I see is that we've been accepted. I don't give a crap how much the money is, right? Like, I'm like, boom. So I start I start messaging people. I make a Facebook status with Tasman Jude's account. People are going ballistic. People start sending us money, right? So the next thing, you know, we're like do- getting money donated to us. And I think we raised like $7,000 or something like within two weeks, something crazy like that. And I mean, keep in mind when, when we were at like nine months old, when, when this got announced, because the festival itself, we were only like 14 months old when we landed, like as a band. Okay. So we buy tickets and all that stuff. And we set up, we actually set up like a little tour. We did um, like nine shows in 11 days or whatever. But what's crazy is, of course, it was giant leap, leaps of faith, right? Use a lot of my own money too and all that jazz. But what's crazy is we land and we drive to, to this, you know, we get a, what, is, what was it called? A wicked camper. We get a wicked camper and we drive to Toowoomba, you know, and we get to Toowoomba and one of, one of, you know, one of the many staff or volunteers at Easterfest is like, you know, welcoming us, whatever. And she goes, Oh, um, one of the bands, like a, a bigger New Zealand band, I can't remember who it was canceled and there's some accommodations and they're going to give it to us. And I'm like, what? So we, we ended up taking their sets, <laughs> like taking their slots. We had, we had, we had like, you know, one thing at Bon Tomps and one thing at some other place, two, two little mini, you know, crevice sets. And we ended up playing five sets, like Epicenter and <laughs> or whatever, right? Like, like we played five sets instead and we got to stay in this this band's hotel room. <laughs> That's great. It was amazing. And that yeah. was the beginning of Absolutely. And, and you guys won the crowd over, right? Yeah, you won over the crowd like crazy. The following year we actually brought Tasman Jude back at the uh like a month before uh the festival mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and toured them uh, in partnership with Easterfest as a promotional tour for the festival. So it was, yeah, and the relationship has uh, continued ever since. Amazing. It's brilliant. What I love most about that whole story, Caleb, <laughs> is that sense, because I'm a musician myself, is that sense of, oh, my God, I got into a festival. Somebody else appreciates my music. That's all the payment I need right now. <laughs> yeah, straight up. <laughs> I know that feeling well. <laughs> straight up. So uh, let, let's jump back then, okay? I mean, that is a fantastic story of how you guys kind of got to meet each other. And I actually think, I believe, it was that second time when you came back on tour that by that stage, Dave, you and I had become yeah, we were on air, quite close yeah, friends. And, I, and I think I'd met you then as well, Caleb. Yep. Let's go back to some of those bigger issues that you were talking about before that you've been kind of wrestling with, you know, the, the spiritual kind of stuff. Because, I mean, you mentioned some of those things and those for me are things that go, you know what, those are probably questions I've had and, mm. and quite happy to be open about my own views. Going, yeah, I'm not sure if I believe in a heaven and a hell or whether or not, you know, a, a literal resurrection is that important for Jesus and all sorts of other things. 
those questions may be quite easy and comfortable for someone who's outside of a, a I guess, a, a predominantly Christian space. But if you're working as a Christian musician and getting booked by churches and stuff, some of those questions can be the, you know, and, and your answer to those questions could be the the difference between getting a gig and not getting a gig. Absolutely. What, what, what's been your experience in that space? Uh, well, quite honestly, I stopped, I stopped marketing myself in that realm. Uh, in honor, in honor of um, people, because okay, so like I may, I'm trying to seek truth, not deceive. So regardless of what you believe uh, or I believe, I'm not gonna say that I'm in your same belief system and come speak or sing at your church if I'm not. Um, so I actually just literally stopped. I haven't spoken or sang at a church in years. Um, so, I mean, it's as simple as that. I, I still believe in honor, regardless, in the same way I wouldn't dress up as a Muslim to, to go, um, you know, pretend to be a Muslim or, right? Like, I didn't feel like I was a Christian minister anymore. If you want to call it, that's what I was doing. I, and nor, nor do I feel like that now. That's, that's just what it was or is. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, that's true. I, um, I mean, a lot of those questions, again, certainly have been um, key triggers for me over the last seven or eight years since Easterfest wrapped up. It was a bit of a trigger in itself for my uh, uh, midlife crisis slash, and I hate this phrase, but my deconstruction of faith, which is a very trendy uh, phrase in those spaces these days. Um, but yeah, absolutely, I, I wrestled with a lot of those have you found answers to those questions or have you just had to become more comfortable with not having answers to those questions? Because that's something that we're really processing a lot on the awkward in between. Well, I think, uh, I think I look a bit of both. The reality is, is that what, what we even know is a mystery because what do we actually know? What, what we've read, because we're seeing it more and more now that, that technology is, um, a bit more widespread and stuff. You know, I'm finding out that black people invented uh, most of the appliances that I use in my kitchen. And I'm going, what? What do you mean black black people invented invented this? I, I didn't know that. Well, well I mean, the fridge is Kelvinator. Clearly he invented it, right? <laughs> <laughs> but do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. we didn't. We didn't know that because the, the you know the the colonizer or whatever wrote wrote down the history, so so they're not gonna tell you that they got the idea from, you know Colonel Sanders is the face of KFC. He stole the the thirteen <laughs> spice recipe from from his his slave like slave maid like you know like his family's slave maid. And it's like, duh! That when you hear it, you're like, oh yeah, of course on. A white man in the 1930s or 40s, America didn't create this delicious fried chicken. <laughs> he would have been insulted to have been thought of as being in the kitchen, right? Like, <laughs> right? right. So, but but again, like I didn't think of that my whole life. I saw, and I'm from the Caribbean, and we 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 should have known better. But I didn't think about it. So that's just one example of a billion that I could say. Well, what? Who wrote down? the stories and told me that all scripture is God breathed. Like first Timothy two, six, three sixteen says like, how am I supposed to know 
the the all scripture is God breathed is the scripture I'm reading. I'm not saying all scripture isn't God breathed. I'm saying what scripture? Mm. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Totally. And even in that, I mean, one of the things that I found going through Bible college myself was suddenly becoming more and more aware. And this is one of the great things because we talked in the in our very intro, like first introductory episode. Like for me, one of those awkward in between spaces is this idea that whilst I might reject, say, this idea of the Bible being some inerrant, inspired, you know, literal word of God kind of thing. I also don't jump to the other side of the fence where I think it's, it's worthless. I think there's a lot of meaning and, exactly. and great exactly. stuff to be drawn out of that. And one of the ways that I'm finding more meaning comes out of it is actually starting to look at it in a greater historical and cultural and anthropological perspective. And I find it fascinating when the more we start to understand about other ancient civilizations that kind of around that Middle East period, you start to learn and see how the Jews started to develop some of their thoughts and thinkings and stuff by borrowing from other cultures. Or Jesus is even using rhetoric and metaphors and stuff that he's taking from you know the Greeks and the Romans and the other cultures around there as well. And for me, that starts to speak of um, you know, and again, kind of we're getting more <coughs> ethereal. But this kind of this this divine what you know, force, movement, energy, love, whatever it is, that is far bigger than any one particular you know set of doctrines or rules. And I actually find that quite, again, can't put a word to it. Um, in some ways, that for me, my faith is this idea that whatever the driving force is in the universe, it's a good one and it's love. But I can't really put anything more you know, beside it than that. Mm, mm. But I kind of sit there and go, the more I start to see how much... Um, is happening in a broader perspective outside of the scriptures, but also that then influence the scriptures. The more I go, wow, whatever is happening here, it, it's quite incredible. Yeah, I um, in the middle of this so-called deconstruction, I, I think I got to a place where I was pretty much ready to throw it all away. Mm. I couldn't quite let go of Jesus, you know, like as a person, his teachings. It was, and I guess my experience of Jesus. Um, as a Christian, I couldn't quite let go of, but it was about all I was still holding on to. And, uh, and I, I guess in trying to kind of rebuild spirituality or faith from the almost nothing that I had left at that point, one of the things that I kind of processed at the time was, and the Bible talks about, um, you know, uh, perfect love casts out all fear, right? Uh, and, and that resonated for me. Uh, and I felt like, all right, from here on, I'm not gonna. I'm not interested in any belief that seems to come from or lead to a place of fear. Mm. And yet, there's so much fear, right? Like some of the things we've been talking: is there a heaven or a hell? Mm. You know, could could people find uh, God? Uh, you know, through other means than Christianity, mm. uh, these kinds of conversations that you're just not allowed to have mm. in most conservative Christian environments, or if you do have them, you have to have them kind of uh, on the assumption that you are going to arrive at a particular destination. You can't just have them and see where you end up. Um, and it just seems so fearful, mm. the, the, the fear of having those conversations and what if somebody comes to a different conclusion to the one we think they're meant to. Mm. No, it, it, I mean, it, it's, it's such a... Interesting environment, the um, you know, I guess the, the the Christian institution or the evangelical institution, and it does come back to that, as you're saying, that that sense of um, almost almost like a fear and control because people are easier to manage, and you know, and I guess um, you know, you can control people's behaviour yeah, a lot right. more. Um, if you've got some sort of big stick or something that you can wield if people aren't going to behave in the particular way that's going to serve whatever agenda it is that you're mm, running. And that mm. doesn't happen just in 
you know, churches, that happens everywhere, right? We see that mm-hmm. in the political space or various – it happens in workplaces. Um, it just seems to be a very effective but not necessarily good way of behavioural management for mm, people. Yeah, absolutely. One of the interesting things, Caleb, and maybe you can just elaborate a bit more, that I've noticed picking up talking to you, also Dave and, and Paul, um, in our last episode, it's almost for, for all four of us, it's been our kind of our pursuit of wanting to know God or Christ or whatever, you know, the Bible better, that it's actually driven us to places of going, oh, maybe we can actually reject some of the stuff that we've, you know, like it's almost our earnest pursuit of faith that has caused us to reject or at least in some people's eyes would have seen us rejecting faith. Is that Does that resonate? Absolutely. No questions asked. Mm. It's... I. Because the thing about it is, is you know, as you meet people and shake hands and actually listen, rather, okay, we often, especially in the realm of Christianity or religion on a whole, faith on a whole, we often speak to be heard rather than shut up and listen. So when we speak to be heard, we don't know what the other people are saying. Therefore, we don't know what other people believe, what their experiences are, what their opinions are, their, what um, they've come to conclusions or what battles they're having. What, and the reality is, is that that's how we learn, is by shutting up and listening, whether it being to the, the still small voice of God or... So who's to say that 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 Hindu woman isn't the still small voice of God? And so, right, so, but where to say that? Because we already believe that. So therefore, when we walk up to that Hindu woman, even if we think our uh, intentions are pure, most of the time in our realm that we have lived in, they're not. We have an agenda even when we don't. And whether the agenda is silencing our ears because everything she says is from a demonic perspective or from an anti-Christ, whatever. The, y'all know all the lingo. And honestly, that is when I realize that that's what we do. And I always put myself in it. I don't try to separate it because I'm guilty. And you are and you are, right? And probably most of your listeners will be too. And all that jazz, we're guilty of it. So what I try to say is, okay, I'm guilty. How do I go? all right, this isn't how I actually want to live. Because once you realize that that's what you've been doing and that's what all your peers do, you're like, oh my God, no, I want that Hindu woman to speak and I want to truly hear her. Then take it, take heed to what she's saying. And the same way we say, eat the meat, spit out the bones to the pastor preaching, it's the same thing. What's the difference between her and him? Nothing. Or often she's just speaking from her heart and he's speaking from repetition. So technically, she's probably closer to God's true heart than he is. No offense mm-hmm. to him. Mm-hmm. You catch? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I was lucky enough to get travel to Japan a few years back, and it was uh, all my family, kids, my wife, and my mum. And, uh, and we all traveled together. And I love my mum, and she's amazing, and she's wonderful. Um, she is very much... Um, still the conservative Christian mum who raised me. We have great conversations. I'll say this about my mum. 
I've been able to have conversations about every single topic that I've wrestled with, uh, and whilst we never end up agreeing at the end of the conversation, I never feel less loved, uh, and I never feel like it's not okay to have the conversation. As much as I, I know she would love for me to have a different opinion at the end of the conversation, but, but it doesn't change those two things. But it was interesting that when we were in Japan, both Ness, my wife and I, we uh, visited some you know, Japanese uh, temple gardens and stuff, and, and we were just so struck by the way they do peace. They just do peace so well. You go into those spaces, it's just incredible sense of peacefulness. Uh, but for my mum, she wasn't really able to resonate with that. She wasn't able to step into that because exactly like we're talking about. Like, some demonic force or she, Well, yeah, for yeah. her, it was... It was not of God, you know. It, w- it was the opposite of being of God, and and therefore she she didn't feel that at all uh, as a result, which was just an interesting contrast. Oh, fascinating! Actually, Caleb, there was something that you mentioned just a, a second ago that I really wanted to come back to, and that was that idea of. Um, Stopping and being still and listening. Um, and I think that's something in particular, I mean, Dave and I, again, we identified this probably in our opening episode, like being uh, middle-aged white men. We're, in a, we're definitely in a, a period of history right now where I think there's a lot of groups that are really needing and wanting middle-aged white men to shut up and listen. Totally, you know? totally. And, and, and for us... So you started a podcast instead. Yeah, well, that's, that's exactly right. We right. we'll just talk some more. It's terrible, isn't it? <laughs> but the purpose, and, and that was part of the purpose in the podcast, is because obviously our heart is we actually do want to become people that are going to be of greater agents of peace and love in the world. Um, and at the same time, there's that fear, I guess, when you are being told to shut up and listen that you yourself are then getting suppressed from having a voice, um, which can also be counterproductive. One of the things I noticed that you're quite passionate about um, that I've seen on your social media and stuff is things like the Black Lives Matters and movements and things like that, which obviously Dave and I don't have a lot of you know, credibility to be able to speak into at all. What are some of the things, I guess, that you've encountered along those lines where you're seeing white middle, you know, particularly middle-class males just not hearing and not getting it? You know, it's funny you ask that because I had an experience today. I won't get into it, but it just, like literally every day, I get reminded of of the privilege that exists in white men and white straight men specifically. If you want to get to the top tier of uh, of yeah, of it, you know, um, of, I am I am almost there. You know, I'm a mixed I'm a mixed straight man. So it's not I'm not in my own mind. I'm not that far off in the police that have. Uh, of, <laughs> Come, come to me. It's mine. I am, <laughs> and to the to the old old white people that look at me in the hardware in the grocery store and stuff, and I can't shop in peace. To them, I'm different. Um, but in, I try to use my voice because really and truly, I am a white straight man from a from a perspective of majority rules. You know. Anyway, that being said, the naivety that comes with the average white straight man is the fact that y'all have just been on top of the world since you were boys. So I try my best not to hold it against the individual um, rather than try to say, hey, this is a group in the same way we say Black Lives Matter that's marginalized, right? You're a marginalized group, but you're the top tier privileged marginalized group. So we're saying, hey, marginalized group, just so you know, this is your realm. 
can you please more than acknowledge that? But it's so hard for a white man to acknowledge it because as soon as you tell a white man that he's uh, anything other than what he thinks he is or says he is, it becomes an offensive thing because he's not being told otherwise. Ever. Ever in his entire life. Now, it doesn't mean he's never had a struggle. It doesn't mean he hasn't had to work hard. It doesn't mean he's never had a fight. It doesn't mean he grew up with both parents loving each other or loving him. Uh, it's not about that. You know, that's what that's a, that's the thing that a lot of, I see a lot of white men doing that. They, they go, oh, but I've worked hard for my thing. Or I grew up in the trailer park. Or, you know, my family was poor. And we're like, yeah, but your family wasn't poor because the government made them poor for being white. And your your and your your hard work didn't come. Uh, you didn't work hard because you're white. <laughs> and and if you think that you worked hard, there is literally a black person next to you that has had to work seven times harder to still not be near the privilege that you have not worked for. So we just all I all I, all I and many people are asking is. The same thing I said about the Christian is to shut up and listen rather than having to be the one that's speaking. That's it. That's it. And I swear, and it's happening right at this moment. Y'all are shutting up and listening and you're going, ah, see, all you, all you have to do is change your heart and mindset towards an idea or just open up the possibility that you may be living your life full of privilege. I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I fully intend on raising my white daughter privileged. The difference is she will know and does already at three years old the realities that exist outside of her realm. So compassion, empathy, right? Like caring, kindness, sharing will, will exist. Generosity will exist in her in a deep way because she grew up with me exposing her. It doesn't mean I have to take her to where I am from and let her learn the hard way because the struggle and da, da, da. that's madness. Never. I don't want anyone I love to go through what I had to overcome. Right. It's not about that. It's about saying, yo, the reality is I exist in this realm. I'm going to raise my daughter in this realm. You best believe it. Because I want her to have the best possible life. However, in that same realm, she will assist others that don't have the privileges that she has. And she will grow up with the knowledge. So therefore, the eradication of the naivety or ignorance. And if the, the naivety and ignorance never existed, you don't even need to eradicate it. So it's one step less of, of healing and trauma, getting rid of right traumas and all that stuff. So... That's really what it's all about. So if uh, the problem, like I said, is, you know, middle-aged white man has never been told otherwise. So it's hard for you all to go, oh, I see. Because you're 40 and you've always kind of just been, like, for example, Dave literally just said it. And this is maybe not pertaining to just white men. But as an example, his mom disagrees with him, but still he feels loved. Mm. Yeah. Society disagrees yeah. with a gay person and people kill them on trains yeah. and subways. Mm. You see the difference? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, absolutely. 
No. And I mean, and it's it's so true what you say, and it just you know that whole idea that white middle aged men just haven't been told to sh- and, and you know, have only ever experienced. And it's really interesting because I notice when I have conversations, either out of even out of the most earnest of positions to want to listen and empathise, the minute somebody else says, "Okay, well, the first thing you need to do is just shut up and, and just you know, listen for a bit," straight away I feel this sense of. Um, defensiveness, like mm-hmm. no, what, hang mm-hmm. on, you can't tell, you know, and 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 it's, how dare you? It's taken me a lot of, yeah. a, you know, wrestling with that myself and going, why am I getting defensive now? Why am I able to, you know, yeah, to to even recognise that I have that natural response straight away? And as you say, I think a lot of that has come from being white, privileged, male, middle class. It's it's almost yeah, as you say, instilled. And, and it's very yeah, difficult. Yeah, it's just literally just like almost a part of your being. So yeah. to mm-hmm. unlearn it and stuff is, is like a surgery. So it really not everyone's willing to have surgery to, to better their, their, especially since, let's be honest, even the most compassionate, kind person in the world is still selfish, okay? We are all to some extent selfish, right? And then of course that selfish goes a little outward towards our children or our spouse or our family or our friends, right? We can get defensive on their behalf or whatever, you know? Um, but really and truly we're still selfish. And so when you get told you shut up and listen, then that's ex- that's like the most offensive thing someone could tell you if you've never been told to shut up and listen. Whereas there's people that exist because of their color of skin, they've literally just had to shut up and listen the whole time. And you know who they've had to mostly shut up and listen to? Middle, yeah, middle class white Us. guys. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that's, that's really what it boils down to. So the, the circle comes around and now you have all these guys claiming that they're being persecuted. <laughs> persecuted. And I can't even say it without laughing because I honestly, it, it cracks me up so much. Um, it's just amazing, you know? It's funny, My one of my brothers is gay, right? But but he's very white, you know, white presenting. And he's about six foot five, so tall, big. Not not flamboyant, but he's gay, you know? And uh, he was a big part of this movement um, in the city we live uh, in Canada uh, pertaining to sexual assault in the restaurant industry and how prevalent it is, especially, of course, the men... Uh, sexually assaulting women right whether it be staff or or customers or whatever and he was huge on it and he was you know top of the like he was using his white voice his white male voice to to really get out there and it got to a point where i had to go yo bro come let's have a chat because he was moving under the understanding that because he was gay which is a definitely of course a massive uh oppressed oppressed community because uh, he was gay the rules of the white white male privilege didn't really pertain to him so I had to as as his again white straight male brother I I saw saw it from a different perspective and went let me silently tell him right like behind closed doors not 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 needing to post anything nothing just like yo just remember you're fighting for, for women's rights right now and you're a dude and you're a six foot five dude. And you know what that means? You're scary looking to a lot of people who have, who have been abused. So, and when you're loud and proud and scary looking, you are actually personifying 
the people that you're trying to say need to go to jail. And he was like, whoa. So he actually took a huge step back and uh, three or four women took over and it became this incredible thing. And now they're actually men that have been arrested and are now in jail because of this movement that he kind of spearheaded, you know, and started. But would it have looked the same if he stayed at the forefront and told me to shut up or because he shut up and listen, did it go further and succeed more and more than succeed more women and more, uh, you know, victims for lack of a better term have felt comfortable with this, not organization, but you know, organization. Um, so yeah, it's, it's interesting because in the same way, uh, a, a black man could have, or, or whatever, you know, it's, there are tears to this. There are levels, you know, that exist, but most importantly, shut up and listen and, and what, see what you learn. Yeah. I, I'm going to ask a question because this, this podcast is intended to be a safe space and I know our friendship certainly is. Um, and yet, I, I'm, it's one of these questions. It's an awkward question, right? Where I'm kind of like, am I about to go and stick my foot in it as a white middle class male, <laughs> uh, even by asking the question? But we, you probably are. I probably am. But I think, okay. <laughs> yeah, it's like, uh, I, I, what, what we mean by that is that we, we've been discussing the fact that because we are becoming more aware of our privilege in all of those spaces. And for me, I tick every single one of the boxes. Like it, I should just never open my mouth if I, if I look at every single box I tick. I'm straight, I'm white, I'm male, all of them. Um, but what we've been discussing amongst other things is that we find ourselves in a place where we go, we want to engage with these conversations so we can be better. Uh, and yet sometimes even knowing how to engage in those conversations because the extent of our naivety, as you put it, Caleb, um, is so great that our starting point for those to engage with those conversations is almost always messy and awkward and, and already missing the point, you know, but we kind of have to get past those places to be able to move into better places. Uh, so I'm interested in that story about your brother um, on the flip side of that, to what extent, if any, do you think there was um, power or value in, in the fact that your brother was a part of creating that platform? Did his privilege set up a platform that when he then was able to step back, which I think is amazing, uh, so humble, um, had, had provided something of value for once he handed that over to the people who actually should have been having the conversation in the first place, but p potentially weren't being listened to initially? Absolutely. That's what it's all about. But your intention behind it is the most important thing. So if y'all are trying to learn, for example, you know, more and, you know, uh, find a way to, you know, continue to break the realities of what have become a part of you just being again no one asked y'all to be white straight males right like this is 
since the cards y'all were dealt and it's just been super good cards for like a long time. <laughs> and guess what? It will be till the day you're dead. Delta, it's still Delta Royal flush. Right, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it's just that, yeah, basically, you know, y'all have been living Royal flushes for the entire time. And someone's just like, yo, if you don't mind, could we also maybe get a Royal flush? And that it's not, no one's asking straight white males to go down to a one of a kind. <laughs> yeah. Right? It's great that you say that actually because I had a conversation recently um, with an, um, an Indigenous woman here in Australia who's a real advocate for um, a- Aboriginal rights and trying to get a greater awareness of, I guess, some of the difficulties that Indigenous Australians have faced and trying to actually get more um, influence within our, our legal system from, you know, from um, Indigenous elders and things. And one of the things that she identified is that white people generally have this sense of fear that if all of a sudden if, if the tables turned and the indigenous people of Australia suddenly had the power, they would want to then come back and, and, and obliterate and, you know, and oppress and mm-hmm. massacre the white mm-hmm. people. And so that's the fear that she thinks is driving them from wanting to negotiate or at least even enter these conversations. And she was trying to communicate that that's a very, in itself, a very white way of thinking. <laughs> yes, and, you know, yes. The indigenous Absolutely. cultures in Australia don't don't think that way. It's not something that's yeah, um, but we just don't yes, get it. Yes, because the colonizer colonizer mentality is inherent in our society, in white society. It's continued, regardless. Of, again, like it, it's capitalism, it's um, competition, right? Like awards and all these things. You know who's better, right? It's brand, brand ads, shitting on other brands, right? McDonald's saying that they're better than Burger King and all these, all these realities, it's constant. Yeah. I mean, really and truly, that's kind of the whole point. Like what, what your indigenous friend said and what I'm saying is everybody's just trying to get at least a flush, you know, at least a little four of a kind, a little something, something, you know? Um, I mean, and even if, if, you know, for for the person holding the royal flush, you're handing in a few cards so that everybody can have like a full house. That's a good win for everyone, right? You think, you think so, right? That's because this, because again, we're not in a poker game with everyone. Exactly. Because white people, white people have played the poker game the whole time. That's how you see it. You're like, oh, I must keep my royal flush. Look at suburbia. Look at uh, cars, right? Like, having the better Land Rover, the bigger boat, all these things. Like, again, it exists in such a massive way, um, mostly in Western white culture, you know? Where I grew up was, like, more about the whole village, you know? Lambo was like, this is the village I'm from, and even to this day, you know, people will message me and, like, or oh, I knew Lambo man could make it. You know, it was about, it's about my village. My village has 1,100 people. And still to this day, you know, after whatever, a decade and a half of me being gone, people are like, yeah, man, Lam- that's a Lambo man touring around the world. That's a Lambo man, you know? It's like this thing about, and they, they're just, they, they literally have not changed their financial situation whatsoever. They're selling fish, they're working at the market, they're, working in the bank, whatever their life is, right? But Caleb made it, and Caleb represents Lambo, so therefore we all made it because 
he's a Lambo man. Mm. See, I just listen to that and I think, man, I, that just makes me jealous. Like, I want to swap cards. Right. <laughs> and, and yet, I, you know, I say that and, and I want to acknowledge that if, you know, if you actually ask me to go and live that way, I probably wouldn't. But, but there's something in that, nonetheless, that makes me yearn for it, that makes me feel lack in the society that we live in. That sure, like we, the privilege in terms of economics and power have been all ours. Uh, and yet I feel like, not only from the perspective of just trying to be a better person, but even just like things like that, just there's riches there that we don't have, that, that we are missing out on in, in the society that we've built, you know? Absolutely. What's more beautiful to look up in the sky and see one star or the Milky Way? I heard um, a parable uh, from, a, from an Irish philosopher that I'm a huge fan of by Peter Rollins. And he spoke this parable um, where this, this woman, she's walking, or she has this, she's, sorry, she's walking along every day and she sees this old man on the beach. Anyway, one night she's having this dream and she dreams in the dream that this old man suddenly gives her this unforetold riches. Anyway, the next day she's walking along and she sees the man standing there on the beach and she says to him, look, I had this dream last night that you were to give me unforetold riches. And the old man looks at him and goes, oh, perhaps your dream meant this. And he reaches down and pulls out a diamond the size of the woman's head and he hands it to her and he goes, perhaps this is the treasure you were looking for. Anyway, she takes the diamond she goes home. That night she can't sleep a wink at all. The next morning she gets up, she throws the diamond out, she runs back down to the beach and she says to the man, I want to know what riches do you have that allows you to forsake such wealth without even thinking about it? Powerful perspective. Yeah. Caleb, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you on the Awkward In Between tonight and we understand that it's very late where you are. In fact, it's probably <laughs> very early in the morning now. Uh, but absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for your, for your insights and wisdoms. If people want to get in touch with you, what's the best way for them to find you? Ah, uh, yeah, the socials is I am Caleb Hart. Don't uh, don't expect too much cool stuff on there. It's mostly drywalling and fathering and a little bit of music these days, <laughs> you know. But uh, I am Caleb Hart. Yeah, if, you know, we're here to to love and inspire and to inspire to love. So we just keep trotting, you know. Uh, brilliant, my friend. Well, thank you for joining us on the awkward in between. Cheers, my, my friend. Pleasure. Talk soon. Blessed, blessed love.